to this Voice of Insurance COVID-19 special episode in association with Specialist Risk Group. I'm Mark Gagan. This, the second in a series of special COVID-19 episodes, brings together a trio of trade body chief executives. Steve White of the British Insurance Brokers Association, BIBA, Claire Lebeck of the London Market Group, LMG, and Christopher Croft of the London and International Insurance Brokers Association, LIBA. We spoke on Thursday the 23rd of April as industry leaders were starting to make more public pronouncements on the eventual financial effects of COVID-19 for UK and major global markets. Speaking to the Insurance Insider, Lloyd's CEO John Neal said it was clear that there was zero chance of Lloyd's booking an underwriting profit for 2020. He later told the Financial Times that the pandemic was no doubt the largest insurance challenge the industry has ever faced, I think by some way. In his Insurance Insider interview, Neil got behind Stephen Catlin's efforts to establish a group of leaders to work on a UK pandemic reinsurance solution, news that the Insurance Insider had also broken earlier in that week. Catlin had put together a new group of top UK executives, including Aviva CEO Maurice Tulloch, RSA CEO Stephen Hester and Paul Ree CEO Julian Anoisi to coordinate the industry's response to the coronavirus outbreak and to improve resilience to future pandemics. John Neal's words were echoed in the US by Chubb CEO Evan Greenberg, who said that the COVID-19 virus could be the largest insurance event ever and warned US lawmakers off any plan to force the industry to pay up for uncovered business interruption claims. He appeared to have been listened to on this front. The Insurance Insider reported that lawmakers in the House of Representatives were considering a bipartisan bill called the Never Again Small Business Protection Act 2020 that would introduce a legal obligation for insurers to pay future business interruption claims. However, unlike other proposed bills, this one would not be retroactive. There's a full discussion of these issues in today's podcast. Back in the UK, the ABI released a £1.2 billion working estimate of total coronavirus claims, of which it expected £900 million would relate to business interruption and £275 million to travel lines. RSA and QBE joined Hiscox as UK carriers to be targeted by disgruntled small businesses on pandemic-related BI claims. Insurance Post revealed that RSA was facing action from a group of businesses that had bought its Cottage Shore Holiday Landlord Scheme and which had had claims rejected for losses sustained due to COVID-19 closures. Post also uncovered a similar potential dispute involving QBE and NDML insurance specialists, an insurance broker that caters to nightclubs. Post said that NDML had sought legal advice after around 60 of its clients had had claims denied. In more company-specific news, the insurer revealed that Aviva was facing pandemic-related claims that could run into the hundred millions of Canadian dollars arising from a sublimited pandemic BI cover it sold as part of a package for Canadian dentists. The insurance insider followed up, saying that Aviva's triple guard cover had put its reinsurers on notice for a 400 to 800 million Canadian dollar loss from the event. Continuing the theme of premium rebates in previous weeks, UK personal lines insurer Admiral announced £110 million of automatic refunds to motor customers as part of a £190 million pandemic relief package. The insurer also cancelled a planned special dividend, but raised some eyebrows as it preserved its standard final dividend. Finally, global broker Aon also announced that it would continue to fund its dividend and that it would not be laying off staff. However, this was accompanied by the announcement of an intended cut in salaries by 20% for around 70% of its global staff and a 50% cut in cash pay for top executives. The news I've just mentioned formed the backdrop to our memorable debate, 
where our highly experienced trio of trade body leaders debated the UK insurance industry's public relations performance, its relationship with regulators, and the UK and international body politic, the insurability of pandemics, and even Brexit, whose negotiations are approaching a crunch point behind the scenes. It's a lively and unusually frank discussion and shows the huge range of work that your trade bodies are getting up to at this difficult time. This second SRG Voice of Insurance COVID-19 special episode comes highly recommended. Before this second special episode starts, I'm on the line with Warren Downey, the CEO of Specialist Risk Group. First of all, Warren, thanks so much for supporting this initiative. I think it's been very market-spirited of you. Before we get going, I just want to ask why you've done this and also to tell us a little bit more about what SRG is all about. Thanks, Mark. Well, we wanted to provide a roundup of industry news through you, as there's an awful lot hitting the press every week. And following the success of the first podcast, where there was some criticism leveled at industry representative bodies, we felt it was only fair to let them speak for themselves and provide a response of their own, which they do in this podcast. Following that successful podcast, there's been a plethora of others up here in the ether. And of course, everyone's really trying to do the same thing, which is to impact, assess the short term on clients and trading, the medium term for recovery and market conditions, and the long term, what things will and should change forever. And I guess that sums up the way Specialist Risk Group are looking at this crisis, which is how do we manage our clients through these difficult times? What do we tell them about the future of insurance as it relates to them? And what do we need to change forever to respond to this crisis? Well, thanks so much, Warren. I'm really looking forward to this second episode. I'd like to talk about communication. Obviously, a really big part about trade bodies is, is communication. I'd like to have a kind of a report card of you know, how we're communicating. Oh, and also, are you communicating with each other? And are we presenting a united front and presenting a kind of lowest common denominator on something that we can all agree on as we are fighting a battle of public opinion at the moment? From the LMG perspective, we had a board meeting today and that LMG board is made up of the, of the great and the good of, of the London market. And that's a really great opportunity for us to get together to discuss that. So from my perspective, I think we are working really well together. And I'm I'm sure Chris will bear that out as well, especially in the London market, getting together, trying to look at the emerging issues that are coming forward and, and proactively discussing them amongst the participants of the market to ensure that we get sight of those as quickly as possible and resolve them for our clients. Yeah, we're on with. Um, Claire and Dave Matchman, Sheila Cameron a lot and Steve and I talk at least once a week at the moment which is actually quite rare because Steve and I usually only meet in Brussels despite working about two minutes apart from each other but um, <laughs> times of crisis yeah. yes, Steve. yeah so to bring you in I mean do you think we're really you know we've had celebrity chefs and all sorts of people and more perhaps the plaintiff lawyer bar hogging the news do you think we're selling insurance's case effectively to the UK public this is, a, this is a difficult one, isn't it? Because what are the, what are the media looking for? The, the, the mainstream media are looking for bad news stories. Mm. The mainstream media don't tend to get uh, too excited by good news stories. So the fantastic work that the industry did during the floods in January and February went largely unreported. Communications is an interesting subject, isn't it? Communication is only as good as the recipient thinks it is. We may sit here and think, oh, yeah, our communications are clear and great and everyone's getting them, but... Uh, we think at the Beaver that we do a pretty good job, but in the last 24 hours, I've had two people who both are pretty close to Beaver's governance structure. One saying, we think you could be doing more, 
and the other one saying, don't, you know, never seen you working so hard. So it means different things to different people. We've got many communications channels at Beaver, as you alluded to, uh, Mark, uh, many different audiences. Of course, you can, you can tell people, you can show them, you can tell them again. And even in normal times, you always get people saying, I didn't know you did that, despite all the, the weight of your communications. We think our communication amendment is good, but obviously we're always striving to do more. These circumstances where a trade body comes into its own, we want to be proactive as well as reacting to queries with all sorts of general and more personal communications. We've changed from having a fortnightly member email now to a daily member email. We're putting an awful lot of stuff into places like LinkedIn. We do quite a bit now on Facebook, which obviously aims at a, a consumer audience. But that doesn't mean to say that we close our ears to members if members say you could be doing more or you could be doing this. And yes, we want to listen. I think what we're seeing, though, is that people are, are quite wary about what they're putting out for fear it might come back and bite them on the bum later on. In terms there of. There is a fear of that, Claire, absolutely. We're not suffering from that fear, I have to say. <laughs> So do you think there's something you could unite around to just to give a one really strong message, you know, even if it's as simple as insurance is actually good and we're the good guys here? Well, I was going to say one of the things I think, whilst I think we would say we're good at communicating with our members, I think, and Steve obviously would as well, I do think we've got work to do on the way we communicate with the outside world away from insurance. And we've already uh, on this podcast slipped into you know we use phrases like wordings which mean things to us but really don't mean anything to the average purchaser of insurance and we have to start talking in a way it always strikes me so picking up on what Steve said about the floods I remember when ABI actually put a quantum on on flood losses it got reported in the press and on the radio on the television as ABI sets the cost of floods at whatever the number was several hundred million pounds it wasn't British insurers pump several hundred million pounds into the UK economy to allow businesses to put their lives back together after a crisis. And that we have to find the language that starts to get it reported in that way and start to talk more in, in tabloid headlines than in sort of insurance gobbledygook. Yes, uh, Chris, you I think you're absolutely, sorry, I think you're absolutely right. There's a really good example. It's just, we're all staring at the face now. Business interruption. If you're an SME customer, you've bought business interruption, your business has been interrupted because of government intervention and your policy doesn't pay. Yeah. Now, we know why. We know why, but the layman doesn't. To use the Ron seal analogy, it's not doing what it says on the tin. We need to change the tin label. We need to make sure going forward that we use the right language to describe what the legal contract that the customer has entered into is right. Another couple of things that will spawn out of this, I think what will become clear is that to customers, this is a legal contract, just like the lease that you sign to the premises out of which you trade. You wouldn't sign the lease without reading the lease document, so why don't you read your insurance contract? And it's complicated. You wouldn't enter into a lease without a solicitor's help, so you shouldn't enter into an insurance contract without the help of a professional insurance broker. So I think there's a dichotomy here that we need to change our language, but we've also got the opportunity here to, to really make a, a big play that says, business customers you need a broker that's right i think i think that point around an advice sale is so important and really is coming to the fore and how important it is i agree you know when i was was on the broking side in the letters you sent with the, with the policies you were saying you know you can do a summary but you have to read the policy and certainly if you are buying in a in a, in a non-advised way then you don't have the benefit of the expertise from the market or the, the broker to help you understand those terms within your policy to, 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 to whilst a huge amount of effort has been put into making 
policies clear English, they are complicated. You know, some of them are really complicated. You need somebody to help you interpret them. So I think, you know, there'll be a big look at what we buy, how after this, I think. Yeah, I agree, Claire. There have been some initiatives, sort of ex gratia, kind of charitable donations and that kind of thing, and funds sort of being set up by different carriers and different places. Do you think we could be doing more to really aggregate all of that together again, to make it more of a headline grabbing uh, thing to say the UK insurance industry is collectively putting a lot of money? You know, if it was 100 million, it might get a headline. I think there's two different things here. There's, you know, helping charities. And I think people are doing a lot already in their own firms. And there are initiatives in the market to try and pull that. But really, what's one thing? And then obviously helping policyholders is another. The efforts to try and pull resources, because at this time, you know, there are lots and lots of charities failing at the moment because their shops are closing. They can't do the same events as they did before. And they obviously need help. And I know that a lot of organisations within the market are helping their chosen charity by taking on the cost of their everyday running over for the period of this crisis to, to alleviate some of the pressure for those charities. Ultimately, yes, as I say, there is an initiative out there to try and pull resources, but it's not easy because everybody has their own particular charity that they are involved with. And also at this time, it's quite difficult to go and ask businesses that are struggling. So we're talking about our clients that are struggling, but equally we've got some of our own that are struggling too. And it's quite difficult to then try and go out and corral them and ask them for charitable donations in a time when they might not have enough money to to survive for the next 60 days. I think we have to be very sensitive to that when we're talking about these initiatives. Yeah, I mean, we have members furloughing staff and applying for government assistance. So they aren't in a position, I think, at the moment to be making donations, not that they will be working where, where they can feverishly to help their clients through the crisis but you know the knock-on effect of clients being challenged is that their insurance broker becomes challenged as well and I'm I'm not confident that we'll emerge from the other side of this crisis without some casualties amongst our membership. Obviously the, the, the typical Beaver member is a much smaller entity than Chris you have at Libra and our members yeah. are spread all over the UK and a lot of them are community brokers and part of being a community broker has been supporting local charities and but then you have the other side of the coin which uh, Chris alluded to there. We've got, as he has, members who are following staff and uh, taking advantage of the £10,000 government small business grant. We will be letting our members know that there are initiatives around, but there won't be any pressure from Bieber to uh, to participate. It's down to the only own individual firms and their own their own choices. So is your role really there? The, the only role you have there is about communicating what schemes and what government assistance is available, both of you, Chris and yeah, Steve. No, absolutely. And that's what we, we certainly are doing. And I'm also very conscious that if your you know, business is under severe challenge, the last thing you need is your trade association coming and going, how's it going? Yeah, can we help? So um, they need to concentrate all their resources on maintaining their businesses, but we can provide a sort of information clearinghouse that hopefully makes it a, a bit of a more efficient process for them. I think that also stands for, cl- for our own clients as when they're placing their business, because obviously they are notably distracted from what they're doing. And I think there's some, there's some talk going on in the market about when we come to the 1.7s, a lot of the 1.4s were already pre-negotiated prior to the lockdown. And I think now when we go into the 1.7s, we're going to have to be negotiating remotely. And also our clients probably are distracted in trying to keep their business going and not filling in a huge questionnaire around in order to create their renewal and you know and negotiate that with underwriters so i think you know there's a lot of there's such so many things to think about and consider at the moment it's an incredibly distracting time 
Yes, Steve, actually, just before we move on from kind of broker hardship, I was wondering if you, sitting at Bieber, have any kind of sense of the scale of the problem amongst your own membership? It's not something that we have actively gauged, Mark, but the majority of my members are small firms. I've got, what, 1,850 member firms, probably around 1,500 or so of those have 20 or less staff. It's the smaller ones that you hear are having problems, but not, it's not just the small ones that have problems. If you're, if you're a, a niche broker, you know, you could be a, a niche travel broker or in, or in Chris's scenario, a, a niche aviation broker. If business grinds to a, if your customer's business grinds to a halt, doesn't matter what size you are, if your customers are trading, you're not going to have an income. So there's, that, that, there's, yeah, there's pressure on all sizes. And you face, they, a, you face a very sorry, difficult, Chris, so very difficult challenge as a business owner where you get into conversations about things like premium payment holidays because undoubtedly that would in most instances be in the best interests of your client which you are both want and are obliged to promote but if a premium payment holiday brings a commission payment holiday then it may not be in the best interests of your business so i mean that's an awful position to be in i imagine and the client comes first i think the regulator is starting to have a look again at the whole concept of payment holidays in the the loan space. I mean, if, you, if you're a, a young family with a mortgage, a car loan and three credit cards and you, and you take a payment holiday on all of them, what, you know, all you're doing is pushing, is piling the debt up higher further down the road. And I think there's going to be a, a problem there that the, that particular sector is going to have to deal with. And the, obviously the regulator will need to deal with that as well. And Steve, do you think there's a problem with premium credit for brokers as well? Uh, this is what we, something we mentioned in our first episode. A problem in what regard, Mark? Uh, if you're having, uh, if, again, with return, if, if you have a recourse premium credit, which means you do have to refund your brokerage if a company stops paying its instalments, for example, on its premiums. Yeah, that is, that's potentially a problem. Although the FCA's recent paper on payment holidays in the consumer credit space, they have now said doesn't apply to premium funding because obviously our contracts are, are annual rather than some of the longer term contracts that the, those rules would tend to apply to. But yeah, it is, it, is, it is a potential problem, clearly. We were talking about communication earlier, but we were talking more about internal communication and also external communication out to the public. But what about communication channels with government and regulators, which is obviously these are ones that are quite well worn for all of you. How would you describe the state of, of those channels? Are they open and are you getting a lot of dialogue behind the scenes with, uh, with your regulators and, and the government? Definitely. Well, we've got, we've... I would say definitely with the FCA, to be fair to them, are trying to be as flexible as possible. We're on the phone to them, I guess, two or three times a week. And they are certainly doing all they can to be as accommodating as they can be within the confines of them still obviously having to do their job. But yeah, we've been very happy with the relationship with the FCA. And Steve? Yeah, we have a, we have a regular dialogue with the FCA. We have a very regular dialogue with Treasury. My team is speaking to Treasury officials typically several times a week, if not several times a day on, on certain days and certain issues. And not just on the latest, the latest, but clearly Brexit was a subject that was uh, exercising, as was issues in the cladding space, and as was issues on flooding. So we're, we're used to a regular dialogue with civil servants, so we're, we're not noticing any blockage at the moment in terms of being able to, to speak. And Claire? I think from, from an FCA perspective, I think one of the things we would say, and it's something that Chris and I have discussed about how responsive they are to queries and how good they have been at, at you know, giving guidance. And I think that is one thing that, you know, that's really great for our industry. 
I think on, on, on the government side, absolutely, I think the channels of communication are open. We were very quick to be on a call, probably at the very beginning of lockdown with John Glenn, the city minister, around the issues of COVID. And we've been really pleased by how supportive the FCA has been around coming out with statements around not retroactively fitting coverage to policies that don't actually cover it in the first place. That's really helped us. Certainly, we've been using that in our communications as a reference point um, when we've got queries, etc. I think, though, that the Treasury is still marching on with all of its aspirations for free trade agreements with the US, Australia, New Zealand and Japan. Our interactions over the last few weeks have, have been continuing on on those themes, likewise with Switzerland. So, you know, they're still managing to look at that sort of bigger picture and what's going to happen after all of this dies down to looking for those big trade agreements. And obviously this week they are in negotiation with the EU over Brexit. I have heard, though, that from an equivalence point of view, obviously COVID has massively consumed time at, at the regulators. And they've actually, they are now in receipt of the documentation to fill in in order for, to, for the EU to make the equivalence decisions. And I've heard that they're, they're far, those documents are far more voluminous than they originally thought. So it remains to be seen whether we'll get those equivalence decisions. Yes, Steve, um, well, um, all of you, uh, it, it seems odd that we'd be talking about Brexit right now, that, that it hasn't been um, kind of postponed or, or uh, you know, kind of extended or something. So, yes, I mean, from your own members' point of view, where is this leaving you? So I actually had a meeting with a member yesterday about their Brexit plans and introduced them to the FSMA in Brussels, and it was it was refreshing <laughs> to get to talk about something else. I mean, I think we um, we had a collection of members who, for perfectly sound commercial reasons, had been playing a wait and see game on Brexit, a game which came to a forcible end on the night of the twelfth of December, um, and now they realise they've got a few months left to try and put some solutions in place so that was work that was happening in January and February and I suspect since March has had to come to a halt so it will be a challenge for those firms that hadn't prepared in advance but equally most of our larger members have very very well advanced Brexit plans and are really just in a position of deciding when to flip the on switch of their new EU subsidiaries. So Steve is it a real differentiation between big and small brokers? Yeah, probably in terms of the number of European risks that they, they deal with. The talk of equivalence is a little bit of a red herring when it comes to insurance intermediation because, of course, there's no equivalence provision in the insurance distribution direct. So a deal that is based around equivalence is basically a no-use-to-up deal when it comes to insurance brokers. So the message we've been giving to our members for a long time is you have to, you have to prepare for no deal. As strange as it sounds, there doesn't appear to be any appetite in the UK side to push for an extension beyond the end of the year. I forget which of the, which of the broad sheets I was reading yesterday, and it says there that Boris is still wedded to delivering his Brexit promise, which was everything done by the end of the year. I think Barnier also came out today saying that we can't use COVID as an excuse. Mm. Um, and Sorry? And he's had it, so he's yeah, exactly. in a better position than most to use it as an excuse. Yeah, so the, so the, message, the message to our community is that if you, if you haven't sorted out what you're going to do with your European customers, the clock is ticking very, very loudly now. Yeah, there and, is no uh, doubt that there'll be no difference between deal or no deal for insurance intermediation. So you have to put a, a reverse branch subsidiary model in place if you want to carry on dealing with the EU 
affected business. What, where there's a sort of nuanced challenge, which I was talking to Treasury about earlier in the week, is when we were heading for no deal, most of the EU27 countries had prepared emergency legislation to allow the runoff of existing policies. Um, in most instances, it was fairly inadequate emergency legislation and tended not to provide for brokers to continue playing uh, their vital role. But, uh, but at least there was legislation, they were alive to the issue, but they were all pieces of legislation drafted for the event of a no-deal Brexit. If we have what is ostensibly a Brexit with a deal, but it doesn't provide any market access for UK-based insurance brokers, they will, will not be in a position to run off existing clients, find them a home, help them claim on policies that will run over the the end of the year um, and I think that's quite an, potentially quite an issue and one which, which we need to make sure we raise in European circles. Yeah the, the time is ticking on some of those transition periods isn't it as well Chris so whilst they might have originally been two years the time is ticking now and now we've only got however many months left yeah. so you know, where they were okay fine we've got we've got two years to sort ourselves out because of the continued uncertainty around you know the deal or no deal those times are ticking away. Yeah. Okay, well, perhaps to move on from Brexit, you'd have seen in the news this week, uh, Stephen Catlin, Stephen Hester, Maurice Tullock, and Paul Ree getting together to sort of start to talk about how do we solve the insurability question of pandemic and communicable disease. So I want to ask all of you, what sort of structures do you think might work? Are we looking at something that's going to be a bit like Paul Ree or Flood Ree? I, I think, I mean, they've proved themselves to be, you know, effective vehicles and I think we have to use that as a, as a model. I think, it's, I think there's currently three initiatives being discussed with the Treasury from different factions. But to me, it sort of would make sense to follow that model because it has been successful. And clearly, Stephen thinks so, because I know that Julian Enoisi is, is heavily involved in that, in the, the steering group that he's put together. Yep, that, and Julian's just, just to clarify, he's the CEO of Paul Ree. So. I think there's an opportunity to also to learn from the say just as thinking of this in the abstract, one of the things that didn't work well with Paul Ree was the way that they very tightly defined the circumstances in which Paul Ree could, could provide cover very much uh, with mind to the way terrorist attacks happened in the, in the early 90s. And it, it became more difficult for Paul Ree to function in a world of the sorts of attacks that we saw in, in, uh, on London Bridge. So I think from that we can take, we need to make sure that any sort of solution put in place is fairly flexible around the sorts of situations where it can respond and provide cover. Continually under review I think that's the most important thing as things develop because obviously we went from fairly fairly sophisticated terrorism tax to unsophisticated and I think Chris is right we need to keep that continually under review as stuff develops. I was wondering what your view as a panel is on pandemic as a systemic risk it would be very rare to have a terror spectacular that affected all of the uk all at once uh, and so you know you could you can offset the underwriting in central london against central manchester and central edinburgh for example so i was just wondering you know it's, pandemic is so much more systemic than that do you think it is insurable to the same degree I mean, steve it's the fundamental risk isn't it it's, it's a like it's like war risk i think the fact that the that the market in its totality hadn't deliberately set out to provide across business pandemic cover suggests that uh, the private sector on its own is not the right vehicle to deal with this. So clearly there is, there is a role for government and I think as Claire rightly said, I think Paul Ree is a model to look at very closely and carefully and can we replicate it to a degree with pandemics? I would postulate 
you know, we've, we've seen when government has to set up infrastructure to pay businesses uh, schemes and things, do you think they could have used the insurance industry's existing trading relationships with all these small businesses around, around the UK instead of having to set up the furloughing scheme, for example, and other things, do you think it would have been preferable to use your existing customer relationships that you already have rather than having to set up a whole, almost like a whole new government agency just to be able to, could, could it be more efficient to use yourselves and your members as a conduit for government aid? I think definitely we would have been a more efficient method of getting help to small businesses than, than the government-backed loan scheme seems to have proved so far. So um, I think that's a message when the, at the right time we should play back to them, but, but in future don't just look to the banks straight away, look to insurance. Steve, do you, so do you think, yeah, and it doesn't, we don't have to be the risk bearer, we can actually just be the conduit and use our existing infrastructure relationships. But there will be a hell of a lot, there will be an awful lot of work involved in administering that and who's going to pay the staff to do it? But I guess it's about getting the help as quickly as possible. And if you've already got a register of members, then it, that does facilitate that. that. I guess that's what you're trying to get at, isn't it, Mark? To try and get the money to the people as quickly as possible and, and as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, good. Um, one other question, one regulator we haven't mentioned so far is the, is the PRA. And I suppose it's probably only fair to, to ask you, Claire, because you're the one who's only likely to have a relationship with the PRA. I mean, have they been helpful? Their, their lens is very different on this than the FCA. Obviously, their, their, their concerns are around solvency and keeping the market and, and insurers safe and insolvent and ensuring that they've got the right reserves. We haven't heard as much out of them um, or, or, or have, have had as much interaction with them than we have with the FCA. But I guess that they put a different lens over this crisis. Claire, can I ask a question? At this Am I allowed to ask a question at this stage? Of course you can. Claire, the PRA did, Claire, the PRA did a piece of work a while ago on silent cyber cover. Do you get a sense they've done anything or are going to do anything on what, what you might loosely call silent pandemic cover? There's, there's already a, an information request out, I believe, with insurers to, to, for them to look at their um, exposures. I think there was a letter from Mel Stride initially asking for, for the ABI actually to collate that information, which was a, which was a strange request at the time because really that's a regulator's role. But I believe that there have been information requests sent into insurers for them to try and look at their pandemic exposure. Right, thanks. Well, okay, here's a quick conduct question, which has come out of a, a Willis Street put out a, a COVID-19 report this morning. Just to be talking about best practice. Well, now that COVID-19 is, is a known event, in fact, Willis Reed described it as a hurricane that had made landfall that was still ongoing, and effectively a live cat, as uh, it would be described in the reinsurance market. If it is that, is it okay for insurers and reinsurers to be excluding it at the next available renewal? Because we now, it's like the house is on fire. We know... We know that, and it's probably not right to be insuring houses that are on fire. I don't know if you've got any views on that. Chris? <laughs> so it's understandable that insurers want to be clear about what they are and they aren't covering. I think what we've seen in the market thus far is some wordings which we think provide unintended consequences, when, especially when they talk about both direct and indirect causation. Okay. So I think there's a way to go in terms of the you know, market discussions to refine those wordings into something that doesn't unfairly disadvantage the client. I think it's a very difficult question where you're dealing with policies that work on a claims made basis. So quite a lot of PI does for that. And if you are about to renew your PI policy and it's a claims made based policy and they are trying to uh, introduce pandemic exclusions, that puts you in a very difficult 
position as an insurance breaking business because you have to anticipate that at some stage down the line you may have some E&O claims that you will be wanting to put in. It's a very difficult area, but I think it's one where absolutely everyone needs to remember that not just through sound business practice, but because of the regulation, regulatory regime that we all live under, everybody has is compelled to act in the best interests of the client. And, and the word best is specifically there. And that needs to be a principle that absolutely applies around renewal and potential exclusion. I think we have the advantage of the London market bit by being clearly an intermediated business. And most of the wordings, are, most of the policies that we have are bespoke. And where I think I've heard a number of times that where there are these conversations, that there are, they are conversations, they're genuine dialogue between client, broker and the market to try and get the best outcome for the client. I think where you're, you're buying under a scheme where that or a non-advice sale, then you are going to come, up across, the, come across those issues and, and you won't have the benefit of sound advice and somebody working on your behalf to try and negotiate through that position. And we've got to hopefully always remember that London is the market where we try and find a way to cover risk, not the market where we try to find every possible method of avoiding it, because um, that's not really our function in the global insurance industry. And I think that's where we, where we struggle. So I'm going back to the comms point we made earlier. The general public does not make the distinction between insurance and London market insurance. Mm. And it's quite difficult for us to, to, to because obviously the nature of what we do is quite different to, 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 to some of the other insurances are purchased outside of London. Yeah. And I think it's quite difficult. We all get sort of pulled into this conversation around consumers. And of course, the nature of the insurance purchase is quite different in the London market than it is elsewhere. And Steve, I mean, you're going to be fighting for, you're making, you're making sure your members are fighting for continuity of cover and making sure everybody does the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think Chris made the, the very fair point about working in the customer's best interest. There's a subtly different approach here to changing, changing a wording that you might put on a piece of new business versus applying that change wording to existing customers. And I, I think that's where, the, that's where we need to be uh, treading carefully as a, as a market. You'd be saying particularly in things that are claims made? I think that's what, uh, Chris made the point very, very well. I think that's absolutely a good example of where we do need to be very careful. I was just um, worrying, uh, wondering a little bit, uh, Claire and Chris. You know, you do a lot of international, lot of international relations. So you can see what's been, what is proposed uh, in some legislatures in the US, either at state level and sometimes on Capitol Hill, in terms of the possibility of retroactive kind of legislation to to force, particularly on the business interruption issue, to force uh, COVID nineteen claims to be to be payable under uh, under non damage kind of uh, situations. I was wondering. If you have any kind of more intel on, on where we are on that and, uh, well, one, are you worried about it? And, and is there anything you can be doing at your level uh, and asking the UK government to intervene as well uh, uh, through those kind of diplomatic channels? Anything you can do about this or any, any, any more information that you have around what's happening? So there is legislation being proposed in a number of states around this. We were in conversation with our US colleagues yesterday and their general view is that none of them will pass. I can't provide this as an absolute guarantee, but that was <laughs> that was the advice we received. So obviously we work very closely, particularly with the CIAB in Washington, who are our direct equivalents. And, yep. um, 
constantly on the phone with them and we will take the lead from them but if, if they tell us that it's that there's useful lobbying that we can do here then that, absolutely that's something we would do it was a successful model we pursued around FATCA we would lobby this list this end they would lobby there so if there's cause for that absolutely that's something we would pick up on absolutely and the same from the energy perspective the lion's share of the business we write in London is from the US. So, of course, all of that, all, everybody in the market is affected by this. I think, obviously, there's been some very high-profile commentators out speaking out in, in the recent days. But, uh, yeah, so, and Chris mentioning to me, as he has just done, saying that they doubt that this will pass. But still, it doesn't, it's not great coverage for us as a, as a profession. As we were saying earlier, you know, it's difficult anyway. And, you know, when you have things like this, it just creates a bad taste in everybody's mouth. Where you can be less confident, I suspect, is where there are already litigation on the go around. There's some litigation in Louisiana, certainly, I think some in California of individual clients trying to establish that they've got cover where the insurer probably thinks that they don't. So that's case by case sort of litigation is, is less easy to predict. Steve, I mean, Bieber, every year you're, you, you, know, you launch a manifesto in the UK Parliament. What's your sense of, we often assume probably in the UK that this kind of thing wouldn't happen here. Are we kidding ourselves or, or uh, should we be confident that this is very unlikely? Well, we, we take a lot of comfort from um, both what Chris Woolard has said to us and what he's put in writing in the Dear CEO letter. And the regulator appears to have no appetite to force insurers to retrospectively give cover, which clearly wasn't given in the policy wording. I think there's a slightly different issue where the wording is unclear, but where it's clear there is no cover, the regulator's got no appetite to force insurers into paying. In fact, on the phone call I had with Chris Woolard, he described that as setting a very, very dangerous and difficult precedence. Clearly, if, if Treasury comes to the regulator and asks them for a view, if Chris gives the same view he's given us, then uh, we'd be comforted by that. Claire. I say, tre sorry, Treasury, I mean, John Glenn certainly is, is of that opinion. And when we had that meeting with, with, uh, with the Chancellor, equally, he understood that and, and was not asking the industry to do that. Uh, and as I said, he openly came out and said that in the comments and in, in other pieces of commentary that he's, he's given that make it clear that they're not minded to do that. So with the regulator and the Chancellor and the Treasury on side, I think the chances are that we are lucky in, in that respect that we've got that support. And I'm just yeah. wondering, from a judicial point of view, your own, you will have your own in-house counsels and other things. Do you think from a coverage point of view, if some of these, particularly the ambiguous ones, uh, COVID-19 BI uh, cases are litigated in the UK as they stand, has anyone got any view on whether, uh, how, how likely to succeed any plaintiff litigation is likely to be? We haven't looked. That I Leave it to the lawyers. That, I, I think it's the thing that I would say, and, and very much reflects the Chris Willard's comments, both in public and private, is it's important that claims aren't resolved by insurers entering into lengthy litigation processes during which the client goes bankrupt. We need where, yeah. where, where there are judgments to be taken, they need to be taken in a streamlined and swift manner so we get to the right answer as quickly as possible. Well, thanks all of you. Um, I was wondering if you, any of you have an, any other business. I've got to the end of the, we've worked through all the questions I had written down. So if there's just like to throw it open to any of you, anything that you think we should have discussed that we haven't? I just wanted to reiterate how well the market and everybody's working together on this. And I think we need to make that clear to, to the clients that actually there's a huge amount of work that's being done across the ecosystem that is the London market, across you know, the country, with, between brokers and insurers to try and get to the best outcomes for clients. And I think we do need to get better at publicising that fact. 
I was also reflecting the other day that one of the things that we were doing when we still trawled into EC3 every day was putting the finishing touches on our response to the FCA's consultation around operational resilience, which was essentially our message was going to say, you already have through the systems and controls handbook and the senior management regime, two methods of ensuring this. Why do you really need a third? And when we eventually do, this is one of the consultations that's been delayed in October. When we do submit, we'll now add an extra paragraph in which says something along the lines of, and it all seems to have worked quite nicely. So and I think that's something that we can be very proud of. That the market really has stood up and we are in a position to be able to do the right thing by clients because we're all still able to interact and trade. I think one of the other, one, just before we close, one of the other things is it'll be interesting, you know, because in this situation, we're not, we're not really working from home. We are at home during a crisis trying to work. And yeah. I think that's quite an important distinction to make that actually we, we are all working under extreme pressures and, and with all our various different distractions, be that dogs or children or whatever. Um, yeah. And it'll be interesting to see how we're all measured and how people will be, uh, will be measured after the event. And I'm hoping it's not going to be that we won't be measured in the same way as we were before, because actually we were all working in under extreme different environments. And uh, I think we, we need to keep focus on, and, and, uh, on that fact that we are not working from home. We are working from home. We are trying to work in a crisis. That said, we will not go back to the market we left. We're, no. This will be a seismic change to the way people operate. And finance directors will not fail to notice that nobody's been in expensive real estate in EC3 or indeed the restaurants or indeed on planes. And yet trade has maintained at a very good level. So I think the operational cost models of a lot of businesses will change very significantly as a result of this experience and, and for the better. But yeah. And delivering cheaper, better products to clients. Steve. Yeah, I I'd agree with all of that. And just to echo Chris's point, I think brokers are doing a terrific job. We just need to make sure that we are looking out for our clients and that we do collectively find a way to find our way through the small number of disputes there are over policy interpretations. But other than that, echo everything that Claire and Chris have just said. Great. Well, thanks all of you. Keep your energy levels up and stay healthy. And I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Voice of Insurance COVID-19 special episode produced in association with Specialist Risk Group. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.